If you grew up feeling the need to be perfect, your playful side probably got pushed by the wayside. Life and work are all about being productive and <clears throat> terribly serious. There's this need to get things right. Don't fail, don't risk looking stupid. Oh, heavens no, because what would people think? And yet, deep down you crave levity. It would be so darn nice to lighten up a little, but it's not that simple, is it? When I was at my most perfectionistic stage of perfectionism, I remember watching people who had this freedom to fail and tell jokes and be so free in conversations. I mean, how did they know what to talk about? I never saw any cue cards. There were no awkward silences. They just flowed. I was, and still am, mesmerized by these individuals. So, to dig into this topic today, I called in the top brass, the Jedi Masters, the magical unicorns of playfulness and levity, and they're both highly accomplished in <clears throat> serious things as well. So, with a wee trumpet fanfare, I'm tickled pink to introduce you to M. Stroud, professional clown, coach, MC, and host of the top-rated podcast, Clowning Around, and author of Lessons from a Clown, How to Find Courage to Show Up for Yourself and Laugh Every Day. She's also the founder of the Laugh, Think, Play movement. Oh, and she did a TEDx talk in a banana costume. Yep, true story. Our second guest is Jason Goldberg, performance and leadership coach for celebrities, change makers, and CEOs. Jason is also the best-selling author of Prison Break, Vanquish the Victim, Own Your Obstacles, and Lead Your Life, and he's the host of the Jason Goldberg is Ruining Podcasting podcast. That is the best title for a podcast ever. Oh, and he shared his ha-has and ahas on major international stages, including Mind Valley, but not in a banana costume. So come on, Jason, up your game, dude. If this is your very first episode of Enough, the podcast, welcome. I'm Dr. Mandy Leto, your host and fellow perfectionist and overachiever. This is a show for anyone whose life looks shiny and together from the outside, but inside you feel like a hot mess, riddled with self-doubt, and you've got this inner critic that uses you as a punching bag on the regular. I don't have all the answers on this journey, but I'm here walking with you as we reclaim our wholeness together. I always have a little banter with guests in the proverbial green room prior to the pod recording. And this time I thought, what the heck, I'm gonna drop you into the behind the scenes bit. I'm already laughing because we haven't even started the interview yet. And these two who'd never met each other are already cracking me up. I'm wondering if I should just sit there and let the two of them talk while I eat popcorn. So come on into the green room with me while these two ham it up. I can just put myself on mute. This is what I've decided. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Mandy. Oh, Jason, shush. We've got to like, this is the boss. I've got to listen to her. She's just there. Over there. Go listen to I her. even put on my girl boss t-shirt. Nice. Do there we go. That there is we go. Awesome. There we go. So I'm curious before we get into like the serious stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious if you came up with an object that makes you feel good enough. I'm super curious what, what, what you got. Yeah. yeah. Are right. you okay? Are you okay with nudity? Oh. <laughs> That's really awkward because that was going to be my answer too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not kidding. Do you want to see? Do you want to see it? Yes, please. Okay. Okay, so everybody. It's a picture of me. Oh. 
you got to like, describe it because some people won't be able to see the video. So go well, on, tell. They're, they're dead to us. I, what do I care about them? If they're not watching <laughs> this, then screw you. Uh, so what you're missing here is a, an adorable picture of me at, I don't know, two years old, five years old, 12 years old. I don't know kids. I think they walk at like seven. I'm not sure. But this is mm -hmm. me as some age, much younger than what it is now, carefree in my tidy whities just loving life. And, and this, is, this is before I got completely confused about life. And so when I look at this, I go, huh, this kid had no issues at all. He was just carefree, living life, not trying to do too much work, not trying to do not enough work and just loving, loving life, probably watching cartoons or some shit. Yeah. So like, how much better I love can you that. this? Actually, I literally, I found this picture. The reason I have this picture is I found this picture and I took it into uh, some ketamine assisted therapy sessions I did. And this was like an anchor point for me to like, remember the really innocent, carefree version of me. Beautiful, beautiful. All yeah. right, Em, what's your version of nudity? Go. <laughs> oh, I can't, I can't wait for the connection here. This is great. Well, so for those of you that are, are not watching the video, because I do care, I'm not like Jason. I'm oh. nice. Uh, he's like, you're dead to me. Uh, this is a very unattractive dog toy, uh, which my dog, Charlie, uh, will you know probably be quite angry about the fact that I'm using because I realized that I was 100% good enough when I allowed myself to get a dog. Mm. because it demonstrated so many different things about love, about care, about commitment and all of that. And to be honest, getting a dog, more challenging than having a kid. Got to be honest, kids grow up. Dogs <laughs> stay the same. He always is needy. But all joking aside, I think that moment where I went, yeah, I'm going to get a dog. I was like, it's because I deserve it and I'm good enough and I can have it imperfectly. There you go, dog toy. Mm. Oh, yeah. Amazing. I love that. Yeah, interesting. What's, what's your pup's name? It's called Charlie. I put him downstairs because actually, just before I clicked join, he was chewing the most annoyingly loud plastic toy. And I was like, Mandy will like it to sound not like that. So I was like, dog can go downstairs. <laughs> Sounds like my ex-wife. Same thing happened. <laughs> Is that because you used to chew on a lot of plastic? <laughs> no, she, she would annoyingly chew on, on, on dog toys. And I would just be like, you're a human. This doesn't yeah. anything. That's it. We're done. That, that was yeah. why we got divorced. I yeah. couldn't keep doing dog toys yeah. anymore. You weren't that development. You were like, you know what? I'm not, you know what? You and dogs, off you go. Over yep. there. Yep. Now I'm evolved. And so now I would I would be loving and compassionate. But back then it was like, come on, lady. It just didn't make sense. <laughs> okay, so who wants to see mine? Yeah, 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 so yeah, 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 yeah of course, yes. yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Those what you who can't see the is kind of like a gangster style toque. You don't know toques in the UK or in yeah, the don't US. Ever, don't ever say toque and gangster in the same thing ever again. <laughs> what is a toque? You've completely it's lost woolly, me. It's a woolly hat that has the word awkward emblazoned on the front because I find this whole enoughness stuff, I find it really awkward to point at it and to refer to it. And it just makes me even more self-conscious mm. when I'm starting to, which is... It's slightly awkward in itself because this is what I've dedicated my life to doing, right? So working on this makes it a little bit awkward. And I think the whole point of enoughness for me has that I've learned to be okay with the fact that I'm super awkward or I can be super awkward because in these moments, especially in this topic, by the way, we're doing this podcast because this is for me and other people might listen too, but this thing about bringing in play there's part of me that thinks, okay, now I have to be really perfect with whatever it is that I'm going to bring to the session today. Like, what can I dig up from the back of the closets from, from like 
the bowels of the kids' toy boxes of to bring and to get it really right, that I can get being fun and playful, air quotes, right. Because, you know, lest I be dun, 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 awkward. And I think that part of me feels the, the awkward part of me, the part that feels like I always need to be performing. I've realized in the course of doing this podcast, I've got to take this off now. Uh, I've realized it in the, in the, in the course of doing this podcast in the course of writing my book in the course of having these juicy conversations, I've realized that I have mastered performing playfulness, which is completely not the point. So why I wanted to bring the two of you together and to create this playfulness alchemy, and I will sit here with my learner's plates and observe with my steepled fingers and my notepad at the ready and muck in, is how can we bring more playfulness into our lives, more levity, more laughter, without those of us who identify as overachievers or perfectionists, we can perform it, like this is how I'm supposed to do playing, but that's sort of missing the point. And I think for those people who will be listening to this podcast, who are used to getting things right all the time, who are used to not failing because failure has this whole story attached to it. Like I have to be the best. Hence, I have to be the best at playfulness, which is again, counterintuitive. And if I can't be the best at it, I at least can't be the worst. And if I am the worst, I at least can't feel like a knob. I can't feel like I'm failing in public. So it's this whole thing about the terror of looking bad in front of other people. So I'm hoping that you can be a beacon of light tonight for those of us who struggle to not be good at something and to perform something, whether it's intimacy or playfulness. There's, there's a, a whole other world that's accessible to us on the other side of dropping that I don't know if it's armor or that mindset of I must be good at everything because it shrinks our lives down into tiny matchbox size if we can only do things that we're already good at, right? So how shall we play? Well, first of all, I just want to say that the, if you put your hat and your shirt together, I think you have the name of your book. <laughs> yeah. Awkward girls can do anything. It would be a fucking dope nice i really just i feel that for you intuitively and when you say you feel something intuitively it's a way to just say i think that's a cool idea but make it sound more profound so Mm. intuitively i feel like that's a book you should write awesome i'm loving it i'm loving it i'm loving it first lesson in playfulness is is to take the things that are right in front of you and find ways that they're to make them funnier uh to make them more light uh, so that that's one example of it right there. Now I'll shut up. Em, yeah. what do you have to say? But it's, it's, and it's also that thing, isn't it? It's about actually having that, just those moments of little wonder and actually just calling it out as wonder, you know? So when you first came on, when I first took Joy, I was like, Jason, I was like, that is the most impressive backdrop I've ever seen. Cause you're not, and then I went, oh no, it's actually real. You're actually in your kitchen because, and it's those little things about just calling out stuff. And, and I think, you know, underneath playfulness for me is just a deep, deep-hearted humanness right but because we you know because we're sort of taught oh well this is how we've got to be as adults and this is how we've got to show up that I think we get scared about being playful which is actually just about being human because we're worried exactly as you said we're going to get something wrong or someone's going to go you look stupid and it's like 
for those people that have that in their heads, it's like just baby steps, just baby steps of little moments of like, that made me chuckle. And then you share that story. It doesn't have to be deep and profound and a big belly laugh, but it can be just those little moments of light. And you go, oh, I just laughed in the middle of a meeting that was meant to be very serious and no one died. You know, everyone's clutching their pearls, though, and tutting. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, heavens, no, no, no fun here. No fun here. Yes, no fun. So, so I love the fact that it's not about going from zero to being a stand up comedian, because that just feels like, you know, for the overachievers, like now I need to take courses on being funny. I need to go to learn improv and I need to go and do all these things to be funnier. But I think what I'm hearing both of you say is just look around because there's material for comedy or lightness everywhere. Right, and that's the difference. It's, com- it's comedy versus levity. So it's not, this isn't about you, anybody becoming a stand-up comic or about them being able to have like quippy one-liners that make people laugh or to be overly clever or anything like that. It, it's about finding the lighter side of the things that you're experiencing. And, and, and that can be challenging sometimes because we wanna be able to humorize without trivializing. Right. So we never want to trivialize if somebody's going through something and say, oh, well, you know, lightness is the key. So, oh, so you you just lost your whole family in a fire. Uh, that, that's funny. Let's find let's find levity in that. It's like, well, no, that just trivializes what somebody's going through. But but properly used, uh, especially when we just start with ourselves and we don't worry about doing it for or to other people. Levity just levity brings us more back to truth because the the the, the stories we make up about reality are far more unkind than actual reality. And so if we can actually just try to bring a little more of that lightness to whatever looks like objective reality, we may see other opportunities to laugh at things, or we may have opportunities to be creative about things or to find solutions to things or to know what to do next. And all these things that get blocked by the ego when we think we have to be serious. Yeah. And there's just that whole thing as well, isn't there, about the whole... There's always like, you know, this is an improv term because I'm an improviser, but there is that there's always gifts. Right. And people will always provide gifts. And I think, you know, like when you're at MC and you're hosting an event, everyone kind of goes, but M, how do you come up with all these funny things? I'm like, I don't come up with any funny thing. I haven't got a list of jokes. That's not my job. What I'm doing is I'm just responding to what is going on that everybody else can see. So there was a moment um, I was hosting a big awards thing and uh, it was about, I don't know, about a thousand people a couple of weeks ago. And there was a moment where everything went wrong. Like everything went wrong. So the tech stopped working, the music stopped working. Everybody was sitting there. And it was that moment where it's like, now's my job. And there's also that moment of like, now's a job. Now there's the fear that I've got to get. So I got on the microphone and just was like, ladies and gentlemen, you might actually think that everything's gone wrong. But actually what this is, is a commercial break that we've obviously planned. We wanted the tech to stop. So you thought it would be a mistake. But actually right now I've got my earpiece. There is no earpiece. I've got, you know, and it was just, it wasn't me being funny. It was, it was me expressing what was going on at that moment that everybody else could see. And so because everybody else could see it, we could feel it. And then we could have that collective levity and humor moment, you know, and that's, that for me is everybody can do that, but they just have to allow themselves to do it, you know, and allow themselves to say it. I think that's part of what makes both of you so funny is that you're noticers. And even if we take the funny out of it for a moment, what makes you so present as coaches as well, because I've been at the receiving end of deep conversations and or coaching with both of you is your ability to drop in and notice and draw attention, like really pay attention with every cell of your body. It's not that you're just listening audibly. You're also like really, really present with the situation. 
So is that something that you're taking into real life? Like you're just really awake to life? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that, that feels, that feels <laughs> yeah. pretty, that feels pretty, I mean, except for the times I'm not, but yeah, I mean, that, that feels, that feels pretty accurate. And, and I feel like it's one of these things where I've always been one of those people when I watch a TV show or a movie, I want to figure out the plot twist up front, like as soon as possible into the movie, I want to figure out what the plot twist is. And so that requires a level of presence and it requires a level of like really paying attention. And one of the ways that can be fun to kind of practice this is to watch a show. I've, I've done this several times to watch a show like on Netflix uh, that is uh, that is not in your native language and do not turn on the subtitles and really pay attention to what you're seeing on the screen and see if you can guess the context of what that conversation is, even without understanding the language. And so like being able to do that and then making up my own story. Sometimes I'm going to make up, well, not, not sometimes, all the time. I'm going to make up my own story about what I think is happening, which could be accurate, could be not, but it flexes my, my creativity muscles, my presence muscles. Yeah. Just my curiosity muscles. It's all these things. So any way that we can like force ourselves to be out of the normal way we look at the world is going to be helpful. Yeah, because in essence, what you're talking about there as well is this whole idea about from a from a theatre perspective, it's this whole thing of there is actually a whole theatrical thing that was called Grammarlot, which is basically you're talking in a language that doesn't exist. But because the intention is so clear, you could actually have a whole conversation. So let's try. So it's Hazing Minaga, here's a gotta go, Hazi Badaga, Jason, Hazimanaka Zikutaga, Zinkara. We should probably come back to English because, you know, it's that's that's what that's our main language. But what goes on at those moments, because there's so much clarity in the intention behind it, it's amazing what you can pick up and you can do a whole piece of theatre in that. Loads of people did in a nonsensical language where everybody will find meaning. But the only way you can do that is about being present which again goes back to that whole thing about being human. Kids are inherently present. So what is it? When do we as adults suddenly go, yeah, that's a waste of time. I need to think and be here and do this and have that. So we all know how to do it because we're all kids, but yet it's not something that we're encouraged to do because everything is about let's multitask. Let's have notifications. Let's do this. Check your phone, do this. Whereas actually for me, when I'm in that mode, if everything is too busy, I'm not very good as a human, but when I'm fully present, I'm pretty decent. And also more happily, I'm happier because I'm like, cool, this is where I'm at right now. So what I'm hearing both of you say is that there's there's three things that are important to this. There's the, the creativity, the curiosity, and the presence. And these are all things that you can work on. And I realize as I'm listening how far I've drifted from this being my natural state. And I think some of this comes from play wasn't necessarily safe for everyone as a kid, you know, where for us who became overachievers, it was all about the performance, all about the achieving and all of us, you know, the whole play thing. It was like, oh, well, that's a waste of time. What's that going to get you in life? It's not going to pay the bills. And all of this, this thing about always having to come home with with trophies and blue ribbons and wins of various kinds. So I think. As an adult, I find it really hard to play. And that's why I've learned how to perform playing. So I can buy myself Play-Doh and make all sorts of cool things with the kids and, you know, put on my funny hat. And like, I have a whole collection of these things. Like I was debating whether do I use this one? And, but it's, it's the, I just put a unicorn, a bright pink unicorn. I'll take a picture of it for socials, but so I can perform it. But I think when you see it done really authentically, it's not a performance. It's a way of 
I'm going skating on thin ice here. I don't know. Is it a way of being? Is it a way of seeing life? It is just maybe fish can't see the water that I'm in and I'm getting too academic and hyper analytical about this. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that the, it's, it's one of those things where like, if you try, if you can name every reason that you love somebody, you probably don't love them that deeply because there should be elements that you can't put into words. There should be parts of the person you're like, I just, it's a, they're just a, when I, I, and I, I can't, because if I try to put words to it, I diminish the power of it. Right. So, so, you know, when we look at what, what I think happens is that I think as children, and, and, I, and I get that it, for some people, it wasn't safe to play at a certain point when cognitively there's an expectation of you. But I think for everybody, there's some period where play was safe. Like even if it's until they're two years old, like there, there was some period where play was safe. And the reason that I think kids play so well is because they're raging narcissists. They, they just care about what's gonna make them happy. They don't give a shit about what you think about what makes them happy. They just wanna be happy. And so when you say you wanna watch cartoons or they say they wanna watch cartoons and as a parent, you say no, they scream and cry and don't give a shit that it annoys you because they wanna watch cartoons. They're very clear on what their soul wants in that moment and they're not gonna compromise. Then as adults, we shift our narcissism and our narcissism becomes, I need to control everybody else's experience of me, right? So I'm still a narcissist. I'm just doing it in a much less productive soul-centered way. And so the question becomes, how can we shift back into the narcissism that says what I want and need, as long as it's not hurting anybody else, what I want and need is of tremendous importance, regardless of what anybody else thinks or thinks I should need or thinks I should do. And so if I'm in that place, then it's much less about like, how do I figure out how to overcome my fear of getting it wrong? Like that, that's, that's kind of the presenting surface level stuff. But the meta stuff is that I somehow have to control people's experience of me. And if I remove the need to control people's experience of me, this is why my, my definition of authenticity is what's left over when I stop trying to manage people's impressions of me. Oh. Right? It's not something I do, right? It's what's left over when I stop trying to get you to think a certain way about me. And that's hard sometimes. That's really, really hard because we don't want to be exiled from the tribe and we want to be accepted and we want to belong. And all these things that lead to us thinking that we have some level of psychological security that needs to be met. And that's that's the thing to overcome. The fact that we think we need psychological security. We don't. Yeah. And I think there's also a part of me, and we were talking about this a couple of, couple of days ago, you know, I think in the sort of the business and even the personal development space, I think there's a whole thing about, you know, what's your purpose? What's your bigger mission and all of this stuff. And then now I was thinking about all my creative friends that are creatives. That's what they do. They're writers, they're comedians. And if I said to one of my friends that's a very successful playwright, what's your purpose? She would just look at me like I was a bit nuts. So I think there's this kind of term, she's like, I'm a writer. That's what I do. And there's something for me about that whole idea about without diminishing what it is that we are, there's something about just allowing all of ourselves just to be rather than trying to put ourselves in these boxes, which is ironic as we sit here in Zoom, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's those things about and, and play in particular. I think there's that thing and that levity. It's like it means different things to different people because that's what it did when we are two or three. You know, you're right. You know, some of us would play in the sand. Some of us would play with invisible friends. Some would play with a train. We would all find our own way of doing it. And again, it's that compare contrast thing. And I love that whole idea of do it because that's what my therapist says. Do it because it feels better. Do stuff because it feels better. And if it feels better right now, do that. 
And then as a result of that, then other things will happen in whatever way it will. And as soon as you kind of go, I'm doing this because it feels better. I'm doing, I'm kicking the leaves as I walk down the park because it feels better. Cool. If you're somebody that's got really nice shoes on, it probably won't feel better because your shoes would get ruined. You know, it's like, do what feels better. Yeah. What would you say if I'm not asking you to give me a 10 step plan, but for somebody who's in this place, like, yeah, I get what Jason and Emma are saying, but for those of us who are, find that really hard, where do we start? For me, I think you start in the place where you feel safest, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm researching book number two at the moment, and a lot of it's about play. And talking to all these different practitioners and experts and various people that move and think about play and thinking and laughing and stuff. For me, the word that's really come through has been safety. And I think it's a really fair shout because, you know, you and me, Jason, I don't know you very well, but you know, it's that thing. We've been doing this for a long time. So we feel very safe to kind of goof about or to be the one that's responding and bringing the levity because we know that we're fine and we know that there's not going to be any consequences. So I think if you are like, okay, I want to play more, but ah, don't know what that means. It's like, do it where you feel safe so that then you can get a little bit of evidence going, oh, okay, I showed a little bit of my funny side, if that's how you play. Oh, I sang a little bit and it's okay. And it's almost like you just kind of need to evidence to yourself, to no one else, just to yourself. Oh, it's okay. I didn't, nothing imploded. The world didn't stop moving. I'm okay. Because unless you know it for yourself, all you're doing is listening to good, lovely people like ourselves, but you're not feeling it. And that's the thing, as you were saying, Jason, it's that thing of like, we can't explain something that's intangible. So you have to feel it for yourself. And by allowing yourself to feel it and you'll go, oh, it's all right. And you might do it with your partner or your friend. And you might never even tell them that you're doing something, but you maybe just say something that was in your head that normally you'd filter and go, no, better not say that in case I don't find it funny. And then suddenly you do it and then they laugh. In your brain, there's a little bit of evidence of like, oh, actually, that was all right. 100%. Yeah, and, and I think that there's, I think there's a real opportunity here too. I, I actually don't, when I talk about play, it's very, very rarely anything that's an outward focused action. I don't really care to have a lot of conversations about like what that looks like for people. Uh, I think it's a great conversation to have. It's just not one that I'm super inspired to, to have, like things you can do to experience more play. Because my, my experience is that when I, when I play, when I bring in a, a, a perspective or a lens of play and of levity to my internal thought process that's asking all these questions about how to play, if I can play with that and not make that so serious and not make that so significant, then the next step of whatever feels good and maybe in the direction of play shows up on its own versus if I have a laundry list of things that I can do out there to be playful, but I'm still taking my own thoughts seriously, then have I really made a whole lot of progress? And I don't know the answer to that. For some people, maybe the answer is yes. Uh, but, but that's for me, it's like, I really want to go as much as possible to like the meta of the meta of the meta and to experience for myself that the less significance I have on trying to be playful, the more playfulness shows up on its own. Oh, completely. And I mean, you know, if I, if I put my clown hat on for a minute, because I can't help it because I am a clown, right? It's, you know, when I'm, when I'm in the clown state, which is just, you know, it's an extension, it's a part of me. It's, you know, um, in those moments, because I'm in that place of clown, which is childlike and very, very heightened observation and joy and all of this stuff, 
I, me as M, I'm not thinking, oh, this is me being playful as I run around being an idiot, doing whatever I'm doing. I am just doing it. And that to me, you know, from, from a clowning perspective, it's one of the biggest gifts that my clowns have given me because it's, it took away that intellectual, like you just described so beautifully, that intellectual, right? Okay, how do I play? What's this? Suddenly it's like, no, I'm just doing and that I think is the, is the key thing. It's not about another to-do list. It's not about a shift within our own deep psyche by having a load of lists of actions. It's about, yeah, allowing and just experiencing that lightness inside. I think you and I have just said the same thing, but I think I might have just used British words and used American <laughs> words. So I think we have basically covered Atlantic. I think we've done very well. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I think that's that's definitely a, a bicoastal uh, a yeah. hemispheric coverage yeah. of the whole thing. Yeah. I think what's different for someone like me who's not found playing safe, but that I know that that's my actual state. It's just there's all this junk in the way that needs to be cleared out so that that can naturally appear again. And I think as I've learned to shift the focus away from what I've decided that it would mean about me if I failed, or if I said something and it flopped, or if somebody didn't laugh at my joke, or if I tried to bring more play into a room where you're doing a corporate gig, for example, and you try to be playful and light and everybody sits there with their lips all bunched up and with their arms crossed, it's like, Mm -hmm. whoa, this is going really, really badly. And being able to somehow disconnect and un-Velcro that the fact of what's happening doesn't need to mean something about me. There's this connection of like, if something goes wrong, I'm responsible. Yeah. And it doesn't because that is, you know, trust me when I say over a 20 odd year of doing lots of comedy and various gigs, there have been things where I've said, and it's it's like, like, that didn't work. But you know, one of the things that I really learned from many years of improv is that it's quite often, and this you don't know until you've done it for years and years and years. It's actually when you do mess up that the audience loves you even more. Whereas when you're starting with an improviser, like must be funny, must do all of these different things. And you have this whole, right, okay, got to be good. What am I going to come up with? Aliens, that's going to be good. And characters, I practice my voices. I'm going to be great. And then after a while, you realize that actually being very good actually doesn't mean jack shit to the audience because they expect you to be good because you're on a fairly good stage, right? What they love is when you're good and then you completely and utterly fuck up because, and then they see that you're like, ooh, that's completely gone wrong. And then because you don't take yourself seriously, it doesn't matter. That's the moment of freeing because they realize that you're human and that we're doing this together and we're having this moment together. And that for me, not only as a performer, but just in every sort of facet of my life, it's like, it doesn't matter because in a moment it will have gone. And because improbites for very nature is so disposable, you have these moments, great laughs, and you know that no one apart from that room will ever see it ever again. So it's not permanent. You know, there's no script written for impro shows. But actually, the permanency is allowing myself, which is what Jason's saying, it's what you're saying, Mandy, it's allowing ourselves just to kind of be kind and be open. And when you do that, then magic play stuff happens. And it's good. Anything to add, Jason? There's a question that I, I, I'll ask people, clients, or, or even, even from stage sometimes as just an exercise is, what's, what's a bigger deal uh, to you? running out of milk or running out of money? And I don't know, what, what would either of you say? 
milk because then I can't have a cup of tea and then I can't. I was going to say you're you're talking to a Brit here that could. Yeah. You're a cereal fanatic too. Like <laughs> I mean, I'm cereal. not joking, Jason. You've just brought up some trauma. On Sunday, I didn't have any milk. So in the morning, I had to have peppermint tea because my shop was also not open. I'm sorry to share it in this experience, but it was very traumatic. It sounds very traumatic. I think you should do some like EFT, some tapping around that. I feel like <laughs> I will. I'm going to tap on it right now. I'm going to tap all the different points. Yeah, yeah. And climb yeah, yeah. Yeah. I meant attaching a tap to a cow. So you would have direct. No, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> so, 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 Both so, options. Most, I like yeah. so, so most people, most people that are not you guys say money. Um, and then the next question is why? And, and of course, it's it's higher stakes, right? You run out of milk, big fucking deal, you know, except for you guys. Uh, if you run out of money, it, it's it's a big thing. And what, what I what I offer in in that moment is the is the the idea that the reason that for most people running out of milk is not as big of a deal is because you trust your resourcefulness to find more milk fairly easily, right? So like even if the shop is closed that you went to typically there's some other shop not too far away or worst than the worst, you go to a farm somewhere where there's cows. Or if you're in California, they have oat milk and almond milk and shark milk and giraffe milk and alien milk. And there's all these different options for milk. And so it doesn't feel like that big of a deal, but most people don't trust their resourcefulness in being able to find money if they, if they feel like they're running out of money. And I think the same thing applies here is that there's this non-belief in my resourcefulness to bounce back from a potentially humiliating situation or a situation that doesn't go according to plan. And I feel like somehow that, that occurrence is permanent and pervasive in my life, right? Mm. Versus it being temporary and isolated, right? Straight out of the book of positive psychology, like the optimists look at things as, as temporary and isolated, uh, pessimists look at things as permanent and pervasive. And so that's, that's the whole thing. So if we knew, you know, this is like the whole, uh, when I talk about it's, it's not your only line in the play, is it imagine you were in a play and you had one line and it was the most pivotal line in the play. And if you hit the line, then your career takes off and the play is a major success. If you screw up the line, everybody's career is tanked and you'll never get a job again. How do you feel waiting off stage to come deliver that line? Uh, you know, do you feel light and creative and expansive or is your butthole completely puckered up and, and you just <laughs> do with yourself? And so you contrast that with what if you're the lead in the play and you have tons of dialogue then if you flub a line, it may sting. Like it, it still, you may feel it that you that you flubbed a line, but you have another line three seconds later, mm. and you're doing this play three times a day, four days a week for the next six weeks. Nobody's going to give a shit about the one line you flubbed on opening night. And so it's this kind of like all or nothing mentality of like I'm never going to be able to recover from this. And it's like, but look at your life. Like there's nothing you've been through that you haven't gotten through because you're listening to this podcast right now or watching it if you're a good human. And mm. and, and and this is what I think is important for us to recognize. Like nothing is freaking terminal i mean things are but not in this realm no and that's the thing as well because quite often i'll ask a question to a room of people and i'll be like right everybody stand up they will stand up and they're like waiting for something deep and profound sometimes and i'm like right on the count of three shout out your favorite fruit one two three go banana there you go i was gonna say carrot (laughs) (laughs) and there's, there's always somebody that does that and then you can see all of their fear Oh, hang on a minute. I'm confused about what they're doing. <laughs> and, then, and then I go, and now sit down. And then everyone looks at me and they're like, was, is, and I'm like, that was it. We were just shouting out our favorite fruit. doesn't matter. But don't you feel better? And then they giggle. And then, you know, and it's all of that stuff. And it's that thing of, yeah, it's, it's just not holding on to things so seriously, you know, because actually in three months, in three minutes, in three days, in three years, will it matter? 
probably not. And of course, there are, of course, the traumatic stuff, the deep things that do really matter, that do have weight, that can have impact. But the majority of stresses, stresses in life is their milk. Have I got a job I like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The most of them, they won't matter in three years time. So why are you getting so stressed? Why are you worrying so much about that immediacy? You know, so it's about how do we look at stuff from a different viewpoint rather than being just caught up in it all? I think a lot of perfectionists and overachievers, whatever has happened in childhood to really make them focused on achievement and performance as absolutely pivotal to their right to exist and to breathe. It's often a lifelong journey to start to unpick all of that. And if I look at this, I was thinking about it kind of linearly, but I don't think it's a linear thing. I think it's more of a, a spiral that there, there's, there is movement and progress on this. But I know when I was probably at the stage of my life where I felt least enough as an adult, I was, that's why I was laughing at the kind of puckered up butthole. It's like, it's so tight. It's so tight. It's like all the sinews are, are tight, tight. And it's, everything feels like it's at stake. There's so much comparison to how am I doing vis-a-vis somebody who's probably 10 years ahead of me in the game or, or smarter or fitter or cuter or richer or all of the above. And it's always about, there has to be some benchmark to to compare myself to. It's never fair either. And that's why it's like being in this place of tautness and, and scarcity, and there's always somewhere to get to. And what I'm realizing as I start to unpick all of this for the past 15, 20 years is it's exactly what you said today. I hadn't quite put that together. So there's no new breadcrumbs on the trail for which I'm grateful. But this idea of it's not permanent, it's not fatal. It feels so heavy and tight and like everything's at stake. And for, for me to win, someone else has to lose. For someone to win, I have to lose. And as you said, it's like having the one line in the play. I never thought about it like that, but you know, there's always a new take and nobody's fixated on us the way that we're fixated on ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I was, I was talking to a client about this last week. He was looking to get funding for a movie that he's creating He's a, he's a director and he wrote this really amazing movie and he's, he's going into these rooms and he has to pitch for, for 10 X more than he's ever pitched before. Right. And so he's pitched before and he's, he's been okay with that, but this is like a much bigger number. And, and he's very scared about it. And one of the things that we explored was the fact that he's not presenting to a room of his limiting beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. He thinks that in the chair are all of his limiting beliefs and those are the people he's presenting to. He's not. They have no idea about all the shit going on in his head. He's not speaking to people who have the mindset that he should be scared and he, he better not fuck this up. They just want to know if this is a good movie idea they can get behind. And so like, I feel, I feel like we do that so much. I've definitely done it where if I'm in a room or I'm talking to somebody or I go to a networking event and I notice that I, I, there's a veil over the person that I'm talking to and it's just me with my limiting beliefs. So I'm not, I'm not ex- actually even meeting the person I'm talking to. I'm meeting my limiting beliefs that I'm projecting onto them that I believe they think about me. So it goes back to this quote that I first heard from Jay Shetty. Uh, I'm, I'm not who I think I am and I'm not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am right? I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Wow. Mm. I think I'm going to need a cup of milky tea to process that one. (laughs) (laughs) Milky tea was my rap name in high school. I mean, well done your younger self for having a rap name called milky tea. (laughs) You know, 
cloudy tea was taken. So we went with no. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes you an honorary Brit, Jason, honestly. I'll take it. Uh, yeah. Most days I'd rather be a Brit than an American. Most days. <laughs> so I end every episode by asking my guests to leave a brick of wisdom. So somebody who's been listening, something that you want to leave them with, it doesn't even need to be wise. So that, that could be a mi- misnomer. So it just sounds a little odd if I say, leave them with a brick. But let's leave them with a brick. What what do you want them to take away when they're processing this and they'll listen to this a second time and they're stroking their proverbial goatees? What do you want? What do you want them to take away? Jason, you go first. Oh, none of this fucking matters. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so it's it's you know, Nancy Klein, she has these books, Time to Think and More Time mm-hmm. to Think, which I think is brilliant that her second book, which is called More Time to Think. Isn't her third book called Even More Time to Think? <laughs> she's done three. And I was, whenever I say Nancy Klein, she's great. She's like, more time, more think, time to think, and then even more time to think. She's like, why she needs, it? She needs an awkward toque, honestly. <laughs> the last book in the series is, should I miss my last appointment? I guess I don't have any more time to think. Yeah. That's the final book in the series. Uh, but, but what she says in one of the, Uh, time to think series books is that as she's talking about it in in a listening perspective, but I think there's actually much broader implications for this is she says that we are both essential and irrelevant. And I really believe that in in our work as coaches, in our work as activists, in our work as change makers, uh, in our work as whatever role we identify with, we are both essential because there is, there is something special about who we are and who we be in the world and how we show up and how we can impact people. And and the fact that if somebody doesn't do it, nobody's going to do it. Like it needs to happen. It's essential. And it's actually irrelevant. It's not that significant. It's not that serious. And so this is a very delicate balance to, to, to hit. And I am by no means an expert in it, but I think the more we can remember that we're essential and irrelevant, uh, this stuff just takes different form. I'm really glad that you went first because it links on really well to what I was going to say. Because for me, it's like, you know, when you've got Lego, right? And those the beautiful Lego bricks. For me, it's like people get really fixated now because Lego comes with, this is your outcome. You know, this is, you buy this pack and then you can make this car. For me, with all of this, it's like, you don't have to make the car. You don't have to make it look pretty. You don't have to put it together in the order that they say. If you're having a bit of fun while you're putting it together and then you'd smash it all up and destroy it and start again, that's kind of the way that you can enjoy play and all of that good stuff. Love that. My biggest takeaway from all of this is the impermanence of all of this. That's like a sunroof moment for the mind for me. Just Thank you both so much for playing with us. That was like really, really, really fun. And I can't wait to read your book. Awkward girls can do anything. I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm just, so am I. It's like I identify. I identify as an awkward girl. So I mean, this actually is, is perfect. This is selfishly, I want you to write this book. <laughs> like you've now manifested through the power of our own podcast. I need an awkward girls can do anything book. Well done, Mandy. As you go. <laughs> I haven't laughed this much in a podcast, I think ever. So thank you both so much for playing. Thank you, Mandy. I have so many takeaways from this episode, and two that stand out for me right now are practicing saying something that you'd normally filter. And the second one is the reminder that we're both essential and irrelevant. Nothing is permanent, including us. So why take everything so darn seriously? That feels super liberating. So I know that you're going to want to hang out with Em and Jason. So head on over to my website and you'll find in the show notes all the details of their books, their podcasts, where they are on socials, 
And you'll also find a transcript of this episode and all the other episodes if you prefer to engage with episodes via transcripts. Oh, and before you go, who's the one person who came to mind when you were listening and you thought, oh my gosh, this person would really dig this episode? Thank you so much in advance for sharing. They can listen on a tea break, if they've got milk in the house, that is. So fun hanging out with you today. I'm so glad you're here. Let's do this all again in two weeks.